Welcome to Half Finished to Done, a podcast for passionate business owners like you who are ready to stop procrastinating and start finishing all of your half-done projects. I'm your host, Christina, and I'm looking forward to helping you finish your projects in a calm, sustainable way using a simple, repeatable process. All along the way, we'll be working through the mental, emotional, and logistical obstacles that are standing between you and extraordinary projects. Let's get into it. I am super excited to have Ashley Jangro on the podcast today. Ashley, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm Ashley Jangro. I am a life coach. I work with moms whose kids are struggling with mental health, learn the tools that they need to help their kids feel better. And I'm also a mom. I have three daughters who are teenagers. My youngest is 11, so she's almost a teenager. And then I have three stepkids. So my husband and I are kind of like the Brady Bunch. We both brought three kids together. So we have a lot of kids in the house. Okay. You're the perfect person to have on. And I just have to give a little bit of context on how we ended up here. We've only met one time in person at a life coaching event. We had a three minute conversation in the lobby and I was like, I have to have Ashley on the podcast. So the context for this is that I obviously work with procrastinators who have a lot of half finished projects. And one of the things that comes up probably every single round is a parent who is struggling with their teen or with their kid, and it becomes a form of procrastination or a form of taking them away from their projects. You're an expert. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that is so common because as a parent, if my child is hurting or if there's some behavior that is disrupting our household, it feels almost impossible for me to focus on anything else. Like when our kids are hurting, nothing hurts more than when our kids are hurting is what I always think. And so it's very easy to allow that to shift our focus because as moms, as parents, it's always been our job to fix what is going wrong with our kids. So it's really difficult not to shift our focus to that. And I think that we'll dig into this, but some of it is inevitable. Some of it is, you should be shifting your focus to take care of your children for sure. And I think that some of it is actually preventable. And we're going to talk about that distinction. So what are the constructive ways that you can intervene with your teens? And what are the destructive ways that are not only maybe negatively affecting your kids, but also negatively affecting you? Absolutely. And the outcomes that you want. Okay. Before we get into that, what are some of the core philosophies that you bring with you into your work? Yeah. So just to describe a little bit about what I do. So clients will come to me and let me know that, you know, their kids are struggling with either something such as depression or anxiety. Maybe it's because of ADHD. Maybe it's behavior problems that are really affecting the parent. Parents learn those tools that they need to help their kids feel better. But the way that I do that is not by focusing on the child. What I do is we focus on mom. So I specifically work with moms, not to say that I would not work with dads. That just happens to be my clientele. And I, we really focus on mom's mental health as a vehicle for her to learn those tools so that she has that experiential knowledge rather than trying to teach her child something that you know she's heard about. So we will take an issue in mom's life. And sometimes it's a work building a business, or sometimes it's weight loss, or sometimes it's over drinking, and address that as a way for her to learn those tools so that she can pass them on to her kids. And one of my core philosophies is wrapped up in that is that when we're focusing on mom's mental health, it's going to impact her kids. And that comes down to this concept that is 
I have background in counseling and it comes back to a concept that we talk about in counseling, in marriage and family counseling, which is called differentiation. And our level of differentiation is our ability to be an individual with our own thoughts and stories and emotions and allow other people to be an individual with their own thoughts, stories, and emotions and have those separate while still staying in community with them. So as humans, we like each have kind of a level of differentiation. And what I've learned, what studies show over and over is that our kids' level of differentiation will not exceed ours unless they have like something that they go into as an adult, which we've probably done as coaches. And so we have a different level of differentiation than our parents. But as we're working on our own, we're giving our kids the ability to grow their own level. So to increase their own mental health by growing ours. Does that make sense? Differentiation. I did not know that it had a name for it, but I'll just say how I describe it to my clients. I always joke. I'm like, do not put your emotional well-being into the hands of someone else. And you definitely shouldn't put it into the hands of a teen boy. Like that just seems like a very unreliable source of your well-being. So I, I say that somewhat as a joke, but that's exactly what it is, is the differentiation between how do you maintain your own personhood while someone around you is struggling. Right. And there's that like push and pull between our need to be individuals and our need to be in community. And they can be separate and we can learn to balance that but it's not an easy skill to master. It really helped me as a mom to realize I'm doing this. I'm prioritizing my mental health so that my daughters have the room to become more differentiated individuals. There's a lot of room in there for moms because what I know we do is think, oh, okay, well, we blame ourselves. Like, oh, my child's struggling. It's clearly my fault. And so this isn't a way to blame, but a way to focus on our own growth as a means to allow our kids to grow. I love that you pointed that out. I was going to ask, how do you both take responsibility for being the parent in the household who does have an influence and an impact on the family and on the kids without blaming yourself. And I mean, I, it's like what you just said about there's always going to be an element of that. There's, I think as moms, and I can only speak for myself and all of the moms I talk to, but there's going to be guilt. There's going to be feelings of guilt. And I talk a lot about in one of my um, videos that I made about how to overcome mom guilt. I don't mean that we overcome it in that we never experience it, but that it doesn't have to be a problem. Just feeling that guilt and understanding, you know what, this is a normal human emotion. It's inevitable and it's not a problem. It's okay that I'm feeling it. And this kind of comes back to some of my core philosophies that where, you know, I really focus on mom's mental health as a means to help kids improve their mental health. But then if we go a level deeper, that is based on that we all have these narratives in our head. Those narratives create our reality because they create our emotions. Our emotions determine how we show up into a situation. And then my core philosophy around that is that those narratives are not fact, that they optional and we can question them. And as we learn to like experience and allow the emotions that they create, we can challenge those narratives and then create change in our lives by changing those like long held thought patterns and behavior patterns. So for anyone listening who's like, this does sound familiar, but in different (laughs) words, (laughs) this is perfect. So we were actually trained at the same life coaching school, which is why we share so many philosophies, but it's the way I describe it is the thoughts 
are your reaction to the circumstances in life, then those create your feelings, which drive your actions or inactions, which then create results. So we're totally on the same page here. And experiencing the emotion and actually processing it and being present with it is different than reacting. You can react from guilt or you can feel guilt and process through it. Mm -hmm. And just sit with it and understand this is normal. This is one of my other core philosophies. Those narratives are not fact. The stories or the thoughts are not fact. And that emotions are not emergencies. They do not require fixing. They don't require reacting. They don't require avoiding. They don't require resisting. They can just be there. It's not comfortable, but they can just be there. Okay. That is so much of the work that I do in my program with people who so great are self-proclaimed procrastinators, <laughs> right? So normally what's happening is you're feeling an intense emotion. And then most people's reaction to that, if they're a procrastinator is like, I can't handle this, got to avoid. And that's where you do all the things except work on your project in our case. And it Definitely adds another layer onto it when you're like, okay, I'm feeling an intense emotion. I don't need to avoid it. But that intense emotion is due to the fact that your child is having an intense emotion. So it's like adds that extra layer on top of it. So that's kind of what we'll get into is, you know, how do we separate those two things out and experience that? The next layer of my core philosophies revolve around understanding as parents, we do not have as much control as we think we do. I really prioritize connection over correction. So connecting with our kids over correcting them. This is a kind of a complicated piece, but identifying the result we're hoping for. Because I think a lot of times as parents, we're like, here's what I want for my kids. And we never stop to ask, well, why? Like, here's the behavior I want for my kids. I want them to keep their room clean. I want them to treat me respectfully. And we never stop and ask ourselves why. Then the final one is that our teens or our kids desperately need to learn to experience negative emotion. I think of this as like one of the greatest gifts we can give to our kids is the time to experience negative emotions and learn to handle them, especially when they're young. And I think a lot of times that starts out with boredom, but that they learn to experience that because what happens is they develop an intolerance for negative emotion. And that's the basis of what creates so much mental health struggle. It makes me laugh. I used to had an ex who was like, my children would never be bored. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My kids would always be bored so that they could learn. Like, I desperately want that for my kids. A hundred percent. Yeah. So they can work their way through it and get to the other side where the breakthroughs happen. Okay. This is so good. There's so many different directions that we could go in. But one really interesting thing to think about is that if you have a lot of prescribed shoulds for your kid, like the example of the clean room, it likely indicates you also have a lot of prescribed shoulds for yourself. And that is a huge thing I work with people on. And that's a huge reason why people procrastinate is because they're like, well, I should do this. I should do that. They have this laundry list of socially acceptable things they should be doing that they don't actually want to be doing. So they end up procrastinating. So I love this piece of you're working through your shoulds for yourself at the same time that you're working through the shoulds you have for your kid. Absolutely. And that kind of emphasizes why we have to work on our own mental health first. Because if we haven't learned that shoulds, I always talk about shoulds are a huge red flag. I love when I hear a should in my brain because I'm like, oh, that's a red flag for something that I need to pay attention to. If we haven't learned to do that, then it makes it almost impossible to start to investigate the shoulds that we have around our kids. So as we learn to do this work for ourselves, then we can take it to that next level, which is 
working on our own thoughts about our kids and their shoulds. And what's so incredible about this, and I see this over and over, as we start doing this work as parents, it impacts our kids. And there's so many different reasons why when it comes down to our brains and how our brains work, but it really does impact them. The way we address problems and the way we help them work through their problems shifts and it begins to shift how they think and how they address their own problems. This was one of our original conversations was this idea that as a parent, and I've heard parents say this, is they're like, oh, I'm feeling awful. I feel terrified and scared and all these negative emotions, but my kid doesn't pick up on that. And my point is, yes, your kid does. Your kid feels that and you have an explanation for why that's true. So can you go into that? Yes. So that has to do with one of the functions of our brains that we talked about, which is mirror neurons. And there's been so many studies around mirror neurons and we don't know a ton about them or how much impact they have, but I feel like it's a good, even if it's not the perfect explanation, it's a good, even a metaphor that we can hold in our heads because there is something to it where if we are experiencing an emotion, even if we feel like we're hiding it, our kids are like on a subconscious level picking up on that. And it creates that, we talk a lot about cognitive dissonance. It creates that cognitive dissonance in their brains because mom's saying, no, I'm doing fine, but they can sense something in their body that's off. And so it creates this like insecurity, which I think is part of what adds to anxiety where it's like, no, everything's fine, but it doesn't feel fine. So I always think that there's no downside to letting our kids understand, you know, if they're starting to feel like we're in, you know, we don't have enough money and we're at risk of not eating or something like that, that might create some insecurity in them, but there's no danger in them understanding like mom's struggling right now. I'm working through something and here's how I'm doing it. I think that there is so much value in providing that explanation. One of the things that we are taught now as parents is letting our kids see us make mistakes and talking through that and then even apologizing is so valuable. I think that we can take that to the level of making mistakes in other areas of our lives, feeling uncomfortable about something, feeling unsure and sharing with our kids. Here's how I'm working through that. So it has to do again with those two things, the mirror neurons, but also our level of differentiation. So if they are sensing like I'm experiencing these emotions, that doesn't have to impact our whole family. That's giving them the room to increase their level of differentiation as well. The phrase that just popped into my head is that expression everyone says, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. How toxic is that? It's so bad. And we think about that too. We say it in the opposite way, but it sounds caring. Like if my kid is struggling, I can't be okay. I've said that so many times in my life. Like it just feels like fact to me. Like when my child was struggling with mental health, I thought there's no possible way that I can be okay if she's experiencing anxiety and depression. And that is equally as toxic. Like it's putting so much responsibility on our children to be okay. And even if we're not saying that to them, they gain a sense of that. Like if I'm not doing okay, mom's not okay. One of the, another gift that we can give to our kids is that knowledge that they can come home and be a mess and mom's still gonna be okay. Mom's still gonna be stable. Mom's still gonna be strong. And it allows them the room to experience all of those emotions in a safe place rather than one that if they experience those emotions, everyone's going to fall apart around them. Imagine that this is a very big question. I know that your entire business is dedicated to working on this, but what is the simplest answer to how 
how can you be okay when your kid is, let's just say, factually not okay, right? Meaning they're experiencing negative emotion. I have kind of a system that I walk through. I think it comes down to asking ourselves powerful questions, allowing ourselves to experience the emotions that come up. So whatever system that you use for processing an emotion, and I kind of, I have an acronym that I teach people to process an emotion, but asking those powerful questions, then allowing for any emotion that comes up and then pulling apart, you probably talk about the model often. So that's the, you know, understanding what are the facts, the circumstances, what are the associated thoughts or stories, what feelings arise from those stories? How do I show up when I have that feeling and what are my results? And then what I recommend is pulling apart. What is my model here? What am I operating out of? And what is my child's? And just the act of becoming aware of that and pulling those two apart gives us a huge amount of power because we realize, okay, even though this is my child's model, this is their experience right now, this can still be mine over here based on the thoughts I'm having about their experience. So then I walk back and I challenge those thoughts to myself. I mean, first, so if my thought was something like, this behavior or this experience they're having is going to ruin their life. Like it's not going to turn out okay. I can become aware, oh, that's my story there. And I can experience the associated emotion. Maybe it's hopelessness or helplessness or whatever comes up for me. I sit and I experience that. Then I can go back and I have access again to the rational part of my brain and I can challenge that. I can ask my brain, what does that mean it will ruin their life? What does, and I ask myself powerful questions. Then I can ask myself, what is it that I'm hoping for? That they never experience a negative emotion? What is the result that I'm looking for here? And I can begin to understand where is my power in this situation based on what result I'm hoping for for them. Where is my power in this situation based on the result I'm hoping for for them? That question right there. I'm like, everybody, every parent, write that down right now. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) And this comes up so much where like a parent will tell me, you know, my child's not motivated in school. They're not doing their homework. They're not going to go to college. They're not going to do this. And I'm like, what is it that you're hoping for? Like, what would be the perfect outcome? And where's your power within that? Because I think a lot of times we just have this, it's the shoulds. It's what you're talking about, the shoulds. We have this idea of everything a child should do. And if they're not doing that, they're a mess. So it's like, slow down, understand who is your child and what is the result you're hoping for for them. So this is so interesting because I think what often happens, probably 90% of the time, is a parent has a thought about how their kid is operating in the world. So let's go back to that thought, they're not motivated. Then the parent experiences a negative emotion because of that, which as we've talked about, affects their action line. What is so interesting to me is that often that action mirrors the action of the kid. So you're like, so often, (laughs) right? So you're like, my kid isn't motivated. So you don't show up for your projects. I think this all the time where I think not only does improving our own mental health ultimately improve our child's mental health, but if you're ever questioning, where are my issues? Just watch what you judge about your child's behavior. That right there. Can you give some examples? So it's like what you just said. Okay, I think they're not motivated. But I ask myself all the time, like if any problem that comes up with my child, if they're being mean to their sister or if they're just irritable or whatever it is, I'm watching that and I'm like, okay, I need to get on that. Then I stop and I ask myself, where is that showing up in my life? 
my solution for it is going to, I mean, it has so many benefits. First of all, it's going to help me understand where they're coming from. So I ask myself if they're acting irritable all the time, then I'm like, where am I doing that? And then even if it's not my, you know, I'm not creating it in that child. It's not my fault that they're experiencing that, but my process of working through it will help me teach them the same process, but it'll give me compassion for where they're coming from. So I might realize, well, I'm irritable because I have so much on my plate. And then I can ask, I can step back and be like, oh, they're probably having that same experience. So whenever I'm focused on something about them, I turn that around and I'm like, where is that in my life? As soon as you said that, I wrote down the word empathy. And if you're struggling to have empathy for yourself and you're struggling to have empathy for your child, how do you actually increase empathy for both of you by looking at where is our shared experience or where is our shared thought line, as we like to say, where are you guys both having the exact same thought? And then I love your idea that you working through that, you understanding your own model and what it's creating for you helps you then help your kid with that. Absolutely. Because it gives you those strategies to work through it, but it, it increases your empathy. So you realize, oh, these are the reasons I'm doing that in my life. So for example, when we were talking about keeping our rooms clean, I always give this example of, you know, I gave my daughters a deadline of when their laundry needed to be folded. I wanted my laundry baskets back and I gave them the deadline and it was by Wednesday evening and Thursday morning, I walked into their rooms and their, their laundry was still there. And immediately my story is like, they don't respect me. They don't care about what's important to me. And so I could step back and be like, that's my model. And I can experience the emotions. And then I challenge those thoughts. I investigate those thoughts. I ask myself, is that even true? What else is possibly true? And it was so funny because right as I finished thinking through that, I walked into my room and there's my laundry sitting at the end of the bed in a basket. And I'd promised myself I was going to have it done by Wednesday evening. And so I had to stop. And I like, that was where it opened up for empathy because I asked myself, well, what are the reasons that I didn't get it done? I know my reasons. I understand it. So then I could say, oh, it has nothing to do with whether or not they respect me. It has to do, I mean, it might. And maybe the reason I didn't fold my own laundry is I don't respect my own, my own self and my own limits that I give myself. But there was all these other reasons and allowed me to see their reasons. So again, I can always ask myself, you know, what am I focused on about them? I feel like that parenting is like the perfect container to grow as a human. I think that marriage is also, I think that starting a business is also, but it's the perfect container to step back and ask, how can I grow through this? How can I change through this? And it's going to impact our kids. This is, you know, I keep coming back to this, like asking powerful questions. And that's something that we'll get to when we talk about constructive versus destructive ways. So if that's where you're going, I'll stop talking right there. This is the perfect segue. That's exactly where I would love to go next. And so again, for a little bit of context, we're talking about thoughts, creating feelings, which drive action. So let's talk about the actions. And I want to give the background that in my program, the action that happens, there's a set of actions. A child has an issue, let's say an intense issue, and the parent is having a reaction, an emotional reaction to what is happening with the teen or the, the kid. So that set of actions becomes really, I'm going to say spinning out emotionally, for lack of a better word, not working on their project. One might say meddling with their kid. <laughs> we can talk about what that means. And then I would say the last layer is 
feeling some level of justification about why they're not working on their project, right? So they're like, yes, I committed to the project. And yes, I said it was important, but now this other thing is a lot more important. So let's talk then about how do you distinguish as a parent between what percent of that is constructive and what percent is destructive and how do you know the difference and what do you do about that? I love this. And it all comes down to that asking powerful questions. And, you know, we talk about we're reacting. Our actions are based on the fact that our child is struggling. And I want to even back up from there because it's not, it's based on our thought about our child's struggles. So first of all, just identifying what is the story that my brain's offering me about the fact that my child is struggling and just even becoming aware of that maybe as far as we need to go, because we might realize, you know what, it's okay that they're struggling. I don't need to do a darn thing about it. I can continue working on my project. So then I would step back and say, this is the time for, first of all, asking powerful questions. And then second of all, being brutally honest with ourselves. I don't even want to use the word brutal because it sounds like we're beating ourselves up based on the answer. It's like being genuinely honest with ourselves and not being afraid of the answers. And the first question I would ask myself is, why do I feel like I need to intervene? Is this situation where I genuinely don't want to face my own emotions about my project and I want the distraction? Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) For (laughs) sure part of it. Totally. So much easier. I mean, it doesn't necessarily feel easier in the moment, but it is easier to focus on someone else's issues than have to address our own. So I would become genuinely honest with myself. Am I wanting to focus on that so I don't have to address the fact that I don't want to finish my project? I want to just weigh in. I know you have so much other interesting stuff to say, so I'm like on the edge of my seat, but that is so important. And I explain this to my clients sometimes. I'm like, there is a very mysterious phenomenon that doesn't have a name yet, but it will soon, that as soon as you commit to one specific project, especially if it's one that scares you, things will pop up in your life out of thin air. Issues that were not issues will all of a sudden become issues and they will feel extremely urgent. So just naming that as a phenomenon that happens is incredibly important. If that happens when you commit to a project, you're in the right place. Now you know that that's something that happens and kids are a perfect example of that. Yes. Yeah. So just being aware, like this is going to happen and here it is. It doesn't mean that I need to, again, react to it. It doesn't mean that I need to ruminate on it. It just is, it exists. So understanding, like being honest with yourself, am I wanting to focus on that? And if you do, if you realize, yes, I do, then I think that's your area. Like that's where you address, okay, now we know. So I think one of the things that I deal with, with a lot with parents is They don't want to go in and investigate what's in their mind because they're afraid of what they might find. They're afraid that they might feel guilt. They are afraid that they might have a thought like, I failed as a parent. And I just invite parents often to not be afraid of those questions because they're just sentences that our brains are offering us. They don't have any meaning. They will create an emotion, but we know how to handle difficult emotions. So it's okay if you have a thought that creates sadness or guilt because you can process that emotion. You'll be stronger for it. And then you'll be able to look at the thought from a rational place and and say, that wasn't even true. So I don't, I think that the first step is just not being afraid to ask these questions. And then if you realize like, no, this is not because I want a distraction. This is genuinely something I feel like I need to address. That's where you can ask yourself, 
why? What is that result I'm hoping for? Am I hoping that my teen will never experience, have to go through this experience? And then I just keep asking myself, why? What am I afraid of happening? What feels scary about this? And that at least, at the very least, allows me to become aware of what I'm hoping for, what result I want. And then I can identify what energy is this coming from? Is this coming from desperation? Is this coming from lack? Like, I'm so afraid that they might have this experience. So I'm coming from this lack of control. Or am I prepared to address this from calm, from confidence? Like, I know the answer here. I know how to help them. So I can calmly approach that. And that takes a lot less time. So it is a lot less of a distraction when you, you know, when you're calm and you're capable of making decisions, when you're trusting your intuition in this, it doesn't require all the time to sit and ponder and ruminate and, you know, go between decisions. So it's not going to be, it's not as tempting to use it to procrastinate because it's not as emotionally rewarding as feeling like, I don't know what to do. That is such an important point there, which is, I always tell my clients, actually processing your emotions and being present with them. One of the reasons we don't do that is because we're like, we don't have time. It is the most time efficient thing that you can possibly do. Saves so much time. Hours, months, years (laughs) are saved in just being willing to actually be present with what's happening for you emotionally. And I always reference the study, like everything I do, I try to base in research. So I read a lot of research. And one of the pieces of research that I love coming back to is a study that I read about processing emotions. I don't think they referred to it as processing. I think it was something like allowing. And they showed in this study that when you take the time to just be open to an emotion, to identify it, to find it in your body, to be open to it, those emotions typically dissipate in 90 seconds. And you know, it was a range between 30 seconds and five minutes, but in general, it's about 90 seconds. And that blows my mind. Because I'm like, how often do we say we don't have time? And it's generally about a minute and a half. Or if it feels really scary and we're like, I I think a lot of people think if they feel it, they're going to stay in it forever. Yes. And I'm like, it's actually the complete opposite. The more willing you are to go into it, the faster it'll pass by. And I have that, I mean, I do this for a living and I find myself having that thought all the time. First of all, I don't have time to go do this. And I've talked to other moms and we've come up with, you know, kind of a set of strategies if we're feeling like that. So I'll get to that in a second. But I start thinking if I allow myself to have that thought, like I failed as a mom, I'm never going to feel like a success ever again. And then I realize, oh yeah, that's not true. So I need to just sit here and feel it. I need to feel the guilt or the failure or whatever it is. I think it's a really important distinction between feeling the emotion that's created by your current thought versus believing that thought and feeling combination as inherently true. So I'll give an example from my world as well. We'll hit it from all angles. So if you're thinking, I am a lifelong procrastinator and that feels devastating or defeat, whatever the emotion brings up for you. There's a difference between having the awareness of, oh, I'm thinking I'm a lifelong procrastinator and that's creating defeat and devastation for me in this moment versus believing that as the inherent truth. I would say that's honestly the summary of coaching is like you said, what is my narrative that I'm believing in this moment versus facts of the universe? I love that. 
Everything you just said, I want to write down. (laughs) It's so important. Yes. And I have a, I think I mentioned I have an acronym that I go through, but you just like put words to why we do the acronym that they do, that we do. And I just want to go back to those powerful questions. So usually every other question is why? I ask myself, why? Why are you thinking that? But understanding the result you're hoping for. And then when you get to that point, you can ask yourself, is that result something I even have control over? Yes. And my teen's behavior, my teen's thoughts, my teen's feelings, I don't have control over them. I want to, (laughs) but I don't. And part of that is understanding, you know, their developmental level, their brain's developmental level. They are not as impacted by us as they are their peers right now, for example. So understanding our teens and our kids' brains and where they are in development is helpful. But asking myself, do I actually have control over that? And knowing that I don't, do I want to stay focused on it? Because that's such a waste of time. So then asking myself again, where's my power there? And sometimes with behavior, you know, your power as a parent comes back to setting expectations and having consequences. Sometimes it comes back to boundaries. There's different solutions for that, but then really being honest with yourself. Do I actually have control over that? This process right here, I'm like, I don't know if you have this in writing somewhere. (laughs) Like, if not, we need to create something like to get this in front of people. But for anyone listening, I would write this down. Can you just actually do a super quick recap of in order the questions you would ask yourself just so people can have this documented when an issue is happening with their kid? The first piece is just becoming aware. Like, and usually I do like body check-ins. Am I feeling stressed? Are my shoulders tense? Is my stomach upset? So I just kind of have made the habit of becoming aware of how I'm holding my body. And I'm like, oh, I'm really stressed right now, or I'm anxious, or I'm feeling really uncomfortable with something. And so then I can become aware. What am I thinking that's creating that feeling? And there is that willingness piece to, okay, I have to be willing to dig in what's going on in that brain. And then I start asking myself questions. So probably every other question is why? Why am I thinking that right now? And I don't mean like why, like what trauma did I go through in my childhood? But like, why am I choosing that thought right now? Or why is my brain choosing that thought? I often separate my brain from myself because it feels a less, a little bit less blamey, like I'm blaming myself. So I understand, I ask myself, why do I want to intervene? And that comes back to my own motivation. Am I trying to avoid something in my own life? Why do I want to intervene? And I ask myself, if I get to the point where I'm like, yes, I know I want to intervene and I like my reasons for wanting to do so. The second question I would ask myself is, what's the result I'm hoping for? Outcome do I hope for for my child? Sometimes I phrase that as, what is my true desire for my child? And that allows me to figure out what energy is it coming from? Is it coming from desperation, lack? Is it coming from calm, confidence? The next one, do I actually have control over that? I think this is such a beneficial process to walk yourself through when you are experiencing an intense situation with your kid. And my clients will actually be really familiar with a similar process, which is the feeling now worksheet. So that's something that we work on in my program as well. Yes. Like, what are you feeling right now? Exactly. So exactly what you said, the body awareness of where is this showing up physically in my body right now? And then understanding what is the thought creating it? How does this make me want to react? Do I like that reaction? 
then I actually add in a last question, which is how can I self-soothe myself right now? That's one of the topics that I get into is that's one of the ways that you can increase your level of differentiation is the ability to self-soothe even when it is uncomfortable. Okay. Let's talk about that super briefly then. What are your recommendations for a parent who needs to self-soothe, wants to self-soothe? I mean, I guess that could get into the acronym that I use. And so this is what I use for self-soothing because I think in a moment of intense emotion, it's really hard to remember what to do. Like I'm like, okay, I should breathe, which is actually often helpful, but I use the acronym STOP. So if I'm like experiencing extremely tense emotion, I tell myself STOP. And that stands for slow down or step away, take control, observe, and process. So the slow down is related back to what you said about we have these certain options when it comes to an intense emotion. We can react, we can resist, we can avoid, or we can process. So that slow down is just a decision or a commitment to processing instead of one of the other three options. And then the take control has to do with taking control back from our brains because our brains, you probably talk about this too. Our brains are like two-year-olds with a Sharpie. One of my clients called it a puppy the other day. Like they're like puppies or, or toddlers. And as, as parents, we know how to handle toddlers. Like we know how to stop that. So I, in the T, the take control, sometimes I'll visualize myself taking a Sharpie away from a toddler. Sometimes I just use the, the sound, the shushing sound like shh to get my brain to stop spinning out. Like I'm like, we'll address those thoughts later. Right now, I just need quiet. And then I give my brain a job which is moving into my body, observing what's happening in my body. So I ask myself, where is this emotion in my body? And I should say observe and name, but there was no room for an N in stop, but observe and name. So I find it, I find where it is existing in my body and I name it. And it doesn't even matter if I'm getting the name perfectly right. Like I might say stress or sadness or anger, but I name it. And then as I name it, then I take the time to process it. Probably similar to what you teach, which is, I find the shape, I find the color. And a lot of times I want to skip over this because I'm like, I don't have time, but it's so powerful and it becomes a habit. And so I'll find the shape, I'll find the outline of the shape in my body. I ask myself if it has a color, a temperature, if it moves, if it's if there was a texture to it, all the different ways I could think to describe it. A lot of times in the middle of this, I have to jump back to the T because my I'll start spinning out again. So I jump back to the T and I take control back and I find it again in my body and process it by describing it. So just to recap that, it's slow down, take control, observe, process. And that is my process for self-soothing. Like we mentioned at that point, it usually, you know, as I started this, it would take maybe five or six minutes. Now I can kind of do it on the fly. But if there's a really intense emotion, I will step away from the situation and do this. As a mom, that's tough because sometimes you can't. Sometimes there's just not the possibility to. There's been many times where this, the stop method makes me teary. I'll have tears going down my face and I just embrace that. I tell myself, this is an awesome opportunity for my kids to learn what I'm doing. And I start telling them what I'm doing. Like I'm having, my daughter and I were in a discussion a few months ago and I stopped her in the conversation and I said, I'm feeling rejected by you right now. I didn't, I don't think I said by you. I said, I'm feeling rejection. I need to just hang on a second. I need to process this. And I just said out loud what I was doing. I told her I'm choosing not to react to it. 
I'm shutting my brain down. I'm taking control and I'm going to find it in my body. And I sat there and I described the color of it. And I told her how, you know, it feels like a bowling ball in my stomach. And then there's like a, a sword coming up through my throat. That's bright yellow. And I thought this is probably going to sound really strange here, but I'm just going to roll with it. This is my 16 year old. When I finished, I was like, okay, I'm calm. I can talk again. Blew my mind because she crawled across the couch and crawled up on my lap, 16 year old. And she said, I want to be able to do what you just did. And it was incredible. And she does it now. She uses that now. And it is so powerful for her. So there's this piece where I say, you know, I want to step away and do it, but I don't think it's bad to do this in front of our kids. It's so that powerful. Makes me right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. And it's it's such an incredible tool to give to our kids. And if I had sat down and been like, okay. I see you're feeling anxious. Here's what you need to do. We're going to find the color. She would have been like, mom, you're crazy. No, but allowing her to see me do it. That's one of the parts of my program is that instead of teaching or coaching our kids, we live in transformation in front of them and they pick up on those habits. However, there's also moments where I'm like, I just need to get away. So the one place my kids know not to bother me is the bathroom. They did when they were little, they know not to now. So I will go to the bathroom and sit and process an emotion. And another mom I spoke to the other day said the one place her kids don't bother her is when she goes and gets in her car. So she'll go and sit in her car and she'll just take five minutes to process the emotion. And it's like what you said. Yes, it's five minutes, but it'll save us so much time in the long run. (laughs) Oh, this is so beautiful. I love this idea. And I have a niece who she's almost four. And I think about her all the time as like, I want to, like you said, live in transformation or live in demonstrating my emotions. So this is so powerful. So here's what I'm thinking as you talk through all of this is we've talked so much about how to, how you want to react when your kid has something going on. I'm also curious if you have recommendations or if we can together talk through what we recommend for how to get back into work when that is the choice you want to make. So I think of it as like how to focus when you also have this other thing happening emotionally. Okay. So just to like talk through what I would say to that, it comes, I don't even know how to describe this quickly, but it comes back to like when we're in our feelings, we can't focus. The way I teach that, have you seen the barking dog and the wise owl before? No. Like I teach this to my kids where if you're using your amygdala, your emotion center, it's like a barking dog that sees danger. And so it's freaking out. And your prefrontal cortex is like the wise owl and the barking dog scares it away. So you don't have access to focus or decision-making or any of that. So you have to calm that barking dog down before your wise owl can come back and you can get back to work. Does that answer that? Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, again, this is why I like teach it in a way that parents could teach their kids those tools or at least talk about it in front of them because it's a really good analogy for kids to understand it. But I'm thinking about then the thoughts are going to keep coming up. It goes back to identifying that it's so if I came up with an example, like my child is hurting right now, accepting that, acknowledging what feeling it's creating in you and then trusting that Yeah, like taking the time to calm that emotion so you can refocus. But it is coming back to that point first of, I know I want to get back to work and I like my reasons why. Yes. And that's really important is making a conscious decision. You don't have to do your project in our case. 
you don't have to not do your project. I think that's the automatic decision a lot of parents make is they're like, screw the project, right? Let's move. Let's go take care of the kids. But just settling down and slowing down enough to make that decision consciously. I teach my clients, I call work while you weep. And I always say that this out of context sounds bad, but work while you weep is just this idea that you actually can be experiencing negative emotions and continue working. And it's a really important nuance that you're not in the most heightened emotions, right? You're not freaking out. You've taken the time to settle that down and you're not suppressing your emotions. You're really taking the time to be like, I understand that I'm experiencing a negative emotion and I'm also going to show up for my work. So just breaking the myth that you have to feel good in order to do work. But I think we're totally on the same page that you can't be in the most heightened of negative emotions. And I would say another thought that just occurred to me as we were talking is if you have a one hour deep work block, for example, to work on your project, a thought that could be really helpful if you do want to do that block is the situation that's happening with my kid does not need to be dealt with in the next hour. Because I think there's so much urgency that makes us feel like we have to get into action immediately. And then it's frantic, chaotic, stressful action versus taking the time to step back and be like, okay, I'm going to give myself one hour. I'm going to feel negatively, but I'm still going to do my work. What are your thoughts on that? I love that. And one of the things that I talk to my clients about is, especially if the emotion that a parent is experiencing is worry or anxiety about something that's going to happen to their kids. I'm like, we can worry about it. Let's put it on the calendar. Let's assign ourselves a time to worry about it. And then you can keep telling your brain, like, don't worry, we're going to get to that at three o'clock. Yes. We'll focus right now at three o'clock. We will spend the whole next hour worrying about it and ruminating on it. And that actually, just by giving ourselves permission to worry and ruminate, decreases some of the worry and rumination. But putting it on your calendar, like, okay, at that time, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to worry about my child. Worry blocks. I love that. Okay. This was fantastic. Everything that I was hoping we would talk about and more. So I really, really appreciate your time. Can you just tell people how to find you if they want to follow up with you? Yes. So there's a couple ways. First of all, you can go to my website, which is ashleyjangro.com, J-A-N-G-R-O.com. And you can find all of my social media there. I have a YouTube channel that you can reach by going to ashley.tube. And that is kind of my version of my podcast where I make videos about all of these questions and a lot of the things I teach. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Half Finished to Done podcast. If you're ready to become a self-assured repeat project finisher, the best place to work with me is in my eight-week group coaching program, Half Finished to Done Live. You'll leave our time together with one finished project and the skills you need to finish any project, personal or business, in the future. Just head to peakcoaching.co slash HFD live for your next step. Can't wait to work with you.